the series right now, we're calling it The Great Betrayal. It's the arrest and the death of Jesus. This is what it's all been leading up to. So we like to think as, a, as Americans, right, that we live in the, the land of, of uh, you know, justice and, and truth and, uh, you know, liberty and justice for all and all that. And we have some laws and some rights as, as Americans, right, that, uh, to help ensure that justice is served, right? If, if you are arrested, you have to be charged, right? You have, you have a right to know what you're being arrested for. Uh, you have the, the Fifth, Amendment, uh, Fifth Amendment gives you the right to remain silent and not incriminate yourself and, and to have a lawyer present and all of those things. And uh, in theory... Those things are to help ensure that justice is served. doesn't always work that way, but that's, that's the theory. But believe it or not, a lot of countries have similar systems. There are, most countries have uh, pretty good justice systems, but there are places in the world where uh, kangaroo courts exist. Right? A, a kangaroo court is just where you just jump to conclusions. Uh, you're, you're willing to skip over evidence and truth and... and, and you know, a, a clean justice system to arrive at the verdict that you want, right? So we've all heard of those kinds of, kinds of things. And the trial of Jesus takes place, it's a kangaroo court, for sure. Uh, but the irony of that is that, you know, under Jewish law, that was one of the best justice systems to ever exist. There were all sorts of protections in place to ensure that justice was served, that truth came out in a trial, that you couldn't be you know, falsely accused and, and that sort of thing. But it, it kind of goes to show us that uh, all the laws in the world don't matter if you ignore them, right? You know, we can make things illegal, but people will do illegal things. And so we're, we're going we're gonna to read um, a few verses. Basically, we're going to see this uh, kangaroo court, this trial of Jesus, uh, and then uh, Break, break it down a little bit. Uh, so Matthew 26, verse 57, it says, uh, Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas. Now, you may remember last week, Pastor Chris preached through um, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and he's arrested, and then this is uh, what comes next. So he, they led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. Let me read that again. The chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain what? False testimony. They're specifically trying to seek out false testimony. So that they might put him to death. They didn't find any, even though uh, many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. And what do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and they beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who's the one who hit you? It reminds me of being bullied as a kid, and, you know, they make you slap your face, and why are you hitting yourself, right? But it's a little, little more mean-spirited than that. But so this is just one portion of the trial of Jesus. We're going to break it down a little bit more, but uh, before we do, let's go ahead and ask the Lord to help us understand it. Jesus, we thank you again for giving us the opportunity today to study your word and to fellowship and worship. God, we're, we're studying about uh, a time when wicked people treated the, the most righteous one in the most wicked ways. But God, as we study your word, we over and over are reminded that people aren't much different. We, we, all, have, uh, we all have a wickedness in our lives. We all have sin. That We have ways that we've ran from you rather than running to you. Things that we've allowed to to cloud our judgment and our decision-making and, and trying to drown out your voice. And so, God, we just pray that uh, you would cleanse us of whatever we've been filling ourselves with aside from you, God. And that we can see the truth of who you are, that we can hear your voice and, and see the truth of who we can be in you. And we pray f- uh, for your blessing on the message, on your people. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so like I said, this is what we just read. That's just one portion of, of the sequence of events that's going to lead up to the crucifixion. And uh, each gospel writer focuses on different parts of the story. And it's not that they're telling a different story, right? It's that they witnessed different parts of the sequence of events. Now, when they arrested Jesus in the garden, what did the disciples do? They ran, right? They, they fled. They spread out and tried to get away. Now, Matthew tells us that Peter didn't, that Peter followed Jesus. We also find out in the Gospel of John that John did the same. John hang, hung back and, to see what would happen. And so John tells us something that, that Matthew doesn't tell us because John saw some events that, that Matthew didn't. Uh, in John 18, verse 12, we're going to pick up there. Uh, well, first, we've got the arrest, right? We talked about that last week. Judas brings the authorities there to arrest Jesus. They don't charge him with anything. They just take him into custody. And Judas is his betrayer. He's serving as his accuser. Under Jewish law, an accuser couldn't be a close associate. That's against the law, but that's just one thing that's kind of out of order. And then they take him first to the home of Annas, John 18, verse 12. It says, so the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus, and they bound him, and they led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And we talked about this over the last few weeks, how ordinarily there's, there's one high priest. He serves in that role until his death, and then there's a new high priest. Under Roman rule, though, they had kind of mixed things up. 
The Romans wanted to have influence and power over whoever held that title. So they had Annas served as the high priest for a while, and then they gave the title to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. So there are two people alive at the same time with that title. Just like today, when a president leaves office, we still call them President So-and-so, right? And so they take him to Annas' house, and Annas would have been highly respected, right? It, people cared what he had to say because he had served as high priest for, for a while. And they're hoping that he can get some incriminating evidence, right? That he can get Jesus to confess to something. He can come up with, if nothing else, at least come up with something they can charge Jesus with. And so, uh, you know, he's, he's widely respected, and they're hoping he can serve that role. And also, he conveniently lives really close to the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? So he's kind of on the way. So they took him there, and then uh, John 18, verse 21, it says, uh, Anna said, question him a little bit, and we're skipping ahead, and, and Jesus says this. He says, why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong." But if rightly, why do you strike me? Right? He says, if I've done something wrong, just tell me what I've done wrong. Right? I love watching those YouTube videos of like sovereign citizens and you know, people challenging the police on different things. And they're always like, you know, am I being detained? You know, this is kind of, kind of what Jesus is doing, but not, uh, not in such an argumentative way. Right? He's saying, look, if you want to arrest me, you want to charge me with something, tell me what you're charging me with. Verse 24 says, so Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. He says, I don't know. We're going to send you to Caiaphas. And so that was the text that we read to start the message, right? Matthew 26, where they take him to the home of Caiaphas. And it just so happens that Caiaphas has an assembly of scribes and, and, and priests there. You know, they're just by chance hanging out at his house in the middle of the night. Now, they've, they've gathered there for this very purpose. They're, what they're doing is they're serving as sort of a grand jury, right? They're going to bring Jesus in and try to come up with what can we charge him with. And if they can come up with some charges, then they will formally charge him before the Sanhedrin. And Sanhedrin is uh, sort of like the Jewish Supreme Court. And in, in Matthew 27, verse 1, that's what happens. It says, now when morning came... All the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. Okay, so they gave him a trial at night, which is illegal, in the home of Caiaphas, which was illegal because a capital crime trial needed to take place in the temple courtyard. And then they bring him to the Sanhedrin in the morning. And the Sanhedrin, like I said, it's kind of like the, the Jewish Supreme Court. It, it consisted of uh, there were 23 priests. Just like in our, our political system, we have three different branches of government, right? In the Sanhedrin, you had 23 priests, so they represent the, the theological, the religious portion of the Sanhedrin. Then you had 23 scribes, and these weren't just people that wrote things down. They would have think of them as attorneys or judges, right? So they, they represent the legal system. And then you had 23 elders, and these are people chosen from among the people. 
to represent the people, the will of the people. So these are like congressmen. And to serve any of those positions, uh, you had to be what they called a, a, a Jew among Jews, right? So you had to be able to trace your lineage on both sides of your family to prove that, you know, there was no Gentile uh, blood in there and had to be educated, have a great reputation. No one would ever suspect you of taking a bribe or, or being corrupt in any way, right? Just like how our politicians are, right? In theory, they're supposed to be, you know, above reproach and, and honest. And I haven't met one of those, but I, I'm sure there is some. There are some that exist. But, uh, so they, uh, among those things, also, they had to be proficient in multiple languages. Right? So they had to be able to speak Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. So that if someone was brought before them, no matter what language they spoke, they could clearly understand their testimony and make a a wise judgment. One thing the Sanhedrin couldn't do, though, they could pass a sentence, but they couldn't execute it because they're under Roman authority. So they, in Matthew 27, they decided, yes, he's guilty, so they send him to Pilate. He's the, the Roman governor of their province. Pilate, though, upon discovering that Jesus is from Galilee, says, oh, I can dodge this bullet. I can send him to someone else, right? It's not technically under my jurisdiction. So he sends him to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is uh, the guy who uh, had John the Baptist killed. So he sends him there in Luke 23, verse 8. It says, now Herod was very glad that when he saw Jesus. For he had wanted to see him for a long time. Because he'd been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. Herod's like, awesome. I've been hearing about this guy. You, you do magic. Right? Can you turn this into booze? Or heal someone? All right, he wants to see Jesus perform a sign. Verse 9, it says, And he questioned him at some length, but he, Jesus, answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently, and Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day. So he's returned to Pilate. And Pilate actually, you know, he kind of half-heartedly tries to get out of this. He actually finds Jesus not guilty. He comes right out and says... I found nothing deserving death has been done by him. And the people cry out, crucify him anyway, right? That we want him dead. And Pilate's like, again, he doesn't deserve it, but fine, I'll punish him. Now, have you ever heard of someone found not guilty and then executed? Now, we hear about people wrong, wrongfully executed. Later, we find out they were innocent. But we don't find them not guilty and then go ahead and execute them anyway. Now, why am I covering all that? I mean, we're going to cover all these things in way more detail in the coming weeks. The reason I, we, we went through all that is I just wanted you to see just how jacked up this whole scenario is. From one scene to the next, it's just this comedy of errors. Everyone's passing Jesus around like a political hot potato. They, 
Nobody really wants to be the one that makes the decision, but they're all willing to lie and, and break rules to keep everyone happy. So now let's go back and we'll look at our little grand jury trial that we've got going on. So Matthew 26, verse 57 says, those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, and uh, where the scribes and elders were gathered together. And so these are the people, like I, we mentioned earlier, these are the people that are supposed to be above, you know, beyond reproach and, you know, can't be corrupted. They're supposed to recuse themselves from a case if they have any kind of personal relationship with the accused. Verse 58, it says, but Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. So Peter's trying to keep a safe distance from all of this. He sets down in the outer courtyard where he can still hear what's happening, and he sees this line of witnesses going in to, to testify against Jesus, which means he has every opportunity at any point, to get up and walk in and testify for Jesus. But he doesn't. And if you know the rest of the story, out of fear and trying to blend in, uh, he ends up ultimately denying Jesus. It's the biggest mistake, it's the biggest regret of his life. We're going to talk more about that next week. I just want to ask you something. Just humor me in this. I know we don't come to church to think about our past and be reminded of this type of thing. But just for a moment, think to yourself, what is the biggest regret of your life? Biggest mistake you ever made? Now ask yourself, did you make that mistake when you were following Jesus closely? Or were you trying to follow him from a distance or not at all? You can't follow Jesus from a safe distance. That's, that's not how it works. Like I said, we'll talk more about Peter next week. Verse 59, it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They're trying to obtain false testimony testimony against Jesus. And it says that they can't find any. Now, that they did have plenty of people come in and give false testimony. Now, keep in mind, under Jewish law, uh, in Deuteronomy uh, 19, it tells us if you falsely accuse someone, right, if we figure out you perjured yourself, you're lying, you falsely accuse someone, you get the penalty that that crime would have carried. Right? So if you accuse someone of murder and it turns out you're a liar, guess who's going to jail for murder or being executed? That would really cut down on our case, court cases, right? You'd think twice before suing someone for the temperature of their coffee or whatever. You know. So they have false witness after false witness. These are all people who should be punished because they're lying. The problem is they're lying about the wrong things. They're coming in and, and like, yeah, uh, he, I saw Jesus rob a liquor store. And they're like, no. Yeah, I, he shot Kennedy. 
they're accusing him of things, but they can't, they're, they're having a problem with all his false testimony because the law required they had to have the testimony of two or three credible witnesses. Their testimony had to agree, and they had to testify individually. Like, you know, I, Ben comes in and testifies. I can't hear what Ben has to say. Then I come in and testify. If our testimonies agree, then we can both be witnesses. That's not what they're doing. But they're waiting for two people to tell at least the same story. And they finally, verse uh, 26, it says, But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, that's not actually a capital offense, right? If, if a guy says, I can tear this building down and build it back in three days, you go, you're a crazy person, right? But that's still not a death penalty type uh, threat. But we'll, we'll go back and see what they're referring to. Jesus did say something along these lines. John 2, verse 19, it says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, right? He says, you destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then verse 21, it says he was speaking of the temple of his body, right? So they, they told some truth and just added a little, little something. That's how the devil works, you know. First lie we ever see. Back in Genesis, the serpent says, well, you will surely not die if you eat this. Just adds a little word, one word. God had said, if you eat of this tree, you will die. And Satan says, well, let me add just a little something to the truth. See, if you add to the truth, it's now untruth, right? It's not true. If you take one step past the pinnacle of a mountain, you're not going higher, right? You're going down. And we all do this. We all add a little something to the truth to accomplish what we want. When you're arguing with your spouse about who said what, and you, you may even say what they said, but you add a little head shake or whatever to it, you know. You said it this way. Because it, it makes me the hero and you the villain, right? I'm adding just, just a little twist to get my way. So there's no shortage of false witnesses, right? Everybody does it. We all tell the story in the way that favors the outcome we want. Verse 62, it says, the high priest, Matthew 26, verse 62, says, the high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. Now, in a trial, the high priest was not allowed to speak at all because he's the most respected member of, of, the, of the council. Right? He could unduly influence people by what he says. So like I said, we've, we've, we've brought up a few things, right? You, you had to have formal charges. That hasn't happened. You couldn't have a trial at night. The high priest isn't supposed to speak at all. 
And he's definitely not supposed to question people because now he's serving it the role of a prosecutor. So this is all, you know, there's just problem after problem. The witnesses are false. And now the high priest is just breaking every bit of protocol. Breaking every law they can break to hopefully find Jesus guilty of breaking a law. And in the face of all that injustice, everything is being done wrong. It says Jesus is silent. Isaiah 53, uh, verse 7. Isaiah had a series of visions of, about uh, the, the suffering Savior, the, uh, you know, the torture and, and death of, of Jesus. And in one of them, he says, uh, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. So you could say, well, Jesus, he knew this prophecy, and he's keeping quiet to fulfill this prophecy. Could be. But what I've found is that Jesus never says or does anything without making sure he can use it as a teaching tool. He's always very careful about what he says and why and when. Peter, later in life, reflected on this, and, and he says this. In 1 Peter 2, verse 21, he says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept, here it is, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You know, when you are secure in who you are and in your calling, you don't have to talk much. Put it in another, put it another way. You don't have to defend or make excuses for doing the right thing. When you find yourself being defensive, giving all the reasons why you said what you said, how justified you were to say it, check yourself. You've already, you've already probably lost. We'll go on. Matthew 26, verse 63, it says, But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, let me rephrase this to where maybe it resonates a little better. The high priest just said, I adjure you by you that you tell us whether you are you? And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. See, the high priest, he gets way more than he bargained for in this answer. Because Jesus doesn't just say, yeah. He says, oh, Oh, I'm so much more than that. And he's quoting Daniel 7 and Psalm 110 
And he basically, what he just said is, yeah, that's me. I'm also the Alpha and the Omega. I am the Ancient of Days. I am the Judge of the Universe. And one day, these roles are going to be reversed, son. Verse 65 says, Then the high priest tore his robes. This is a, uh, you know, a way to really be dramatic, you know. But he, it's, uh, you know, it's a way to show grief and all this stuff. It's also illegal for the high priest to ever do this, just for the record. He tore his robes, and he says, he has blasphemed. Now, I was talking with Ben about this earlier. He's saying that, you know, this is blasphemy. You know, there's no law against claiming to be the Messiah unless you falsely claim it. Jesus answered his question, and Caiaphas is just refusing to accept his answer. He truthfully told him, yeah, I'm him. And now he's accusing him of blasphemy. By the way, if you ever hear people say that, oh, Jesus never actually claimed to be God, that's just baloney, right? It's multiple times, and this one specifically. That's why he's accusing him of blasphemy, is he's saying, this guy just said he's God. Behold, you've now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, he deserves death. And then they spat in his face. And they beat him with their fists. And others slapped him. And said, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who's the one who hit you? In one of Isaiah's other visions, he, he describes what Jesus looked like after the beating that he took. And he says that he barely looked human. If you've ever seen someone after maybe a terrible car accident, and you, you know, I, I can't even recognize them. So how Jesus ends up after this beating The Talmud is a, it's a collection of writings and laws. and uh, It's like the expansion kit that the Jews used for legal things. And in the Talmud, there's this section, there's this law that has puzzled people for centuries. Attorneys today still argue about it and debate why it existed. And, uh, I read a paper the other day about how it's influencing how um, physics professors are thinking about laws of probability and all this stuff. Uh, but it's, it's the law of unanimity. I'm going to read you Mark's account of the scene we just read. It says, you have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they what? They all condemned him to be deserving of death. So the law of unanimity is this peculiar thing. In a capital case, if there was a unanimous guilty verdict. Now, the way they did the, the voting is they, they sat in a circle and everyone could see everyone else. If there was a unanimous guilty verdict, the guilty party was set free. Yeah, half the room just went, what? Right, we use... Uh, unanimity in our judicial system, right? If there's 12 jurors and three of them say not guilty and the rest say guilty, that you end up with a, a mistrial or a hung jury, right? But in Israel, they had this peculiar law. Now, why would that be? Well, there's a lot of theories, and I'm not going to solve it for you today, but 
But I think, maybe, it was to kind of avoid a mob mentality. Right? It was to avoid just going along to get along. And the, and the rabbis over the years taught that, you know, part of why this law existed is it implied the absolute lack of the presence of mercy. In other words, if 70 people all unanimously find you guilty, something crooked went on. Someone voted just to get along with everyone else. And to avoid this, actually, what would happen is you get down to, you know, juror number 67 or whatever, and you look around and go, uh, not guilty, because I don't want to do this trial again. Right? They would, someone would vote against it just so they didn't have this. So my point in all that is Jesus, he's not convicted by some backward barbaric system. This is a sophisticated legal system uniquely designed for mercy. And it's still completely disregarded by wicked men. So, I know I'm boring you with all my ancient Jewish law. So what's the takeaway? I think, for one, there is one who judges righteously. You know, we're, we're often tempted to do the wrong thing to get our way. And if we feel like we're being treated unfairly, uh, we can feel justified in doing the wrong thing to get justice, right? I mean, I know it was mean, but she had it coming. You know, I know the way I treated that drive through worker was not very Christ-like, but for crying out loud, Right? We feel justified in putting people in their place. I'm going to read this verse we read earlier, 1 Peter 2, verse 23. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. There is one who judges righteously. Over and over through God's word, it says that Vengeance is mine, I will repay. I, I am fully aware of what you've gone through, your trials and your tribulations. You will be rewarded. I've got this. Do you trust me or not? So there is one who judges righteously, and it isn't me. Right? These people, they broke all sorts of laws, broke every law in the book, in order to hopefully find Jesus guilty of breaking one law. Totally out of balance, right? It's ridiculous. It's exactly what we do all the time. Because when someone wrongs me, I want justice. And when I wrong someone, I want mercy. Right? We twist people's words and people twist scriptures to get their way. More often than not, we don't judge fairly. We jump to conclusions and try to twist things in our favor. It's just the reality. And what I think the biggest one uh, that we do this with is we are unwilling to honestly weigh the evidence when it comes to Jesus. 
right? Is he really who he says he is or not? Caiaphas asked him point blank. Jesus answered him point blank. And Caiaphas rejected the answer. Because it didn't work in his favor in the moment. Now, Paul, uh, in the book of Acts, he's, he's preaching to this, this uh, audience of people who are used to worshiping all sorts of false gods. They have an altar for every kind of god you can imagine. And he comes to tell them about the one god that they haven't considered, the one god that they've just outright ignored. He says, this, is, this one god is the god who determined your place and your time in history. He determined where you would be to give you every opportunity, the best opportunity to come to know him. If we would just grope for him, we would find him because he's not far from us. And then he says this. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Do you judge the evidence, the proof for Jesus, honestly? Are you basing your opinions of who he is on like a History Channel documentary? Have you actually read what he says? Is he who he says he is? If so, it really matters. It really matters. I'm going to leave it at that. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you that you love us more than we can understand. We thank, we thank you, God, that when you're being mistreated and abused by wicked people, you kept loving them anyway. And Jesus, we still ignore you. We still try to avoid answering the question of who you are. And you keep loving us anyway. Jesus, I just pray that if there's anyone here or listening online or uh, that uh, they've been thinking about these questions, that your Holy Spirit would continue to uh, convict them and, and draw them to the truth to see that uh, you are who you say you are. You did what you said you did. And, that, and we thank you, Lord, that your word says that if we trust you for eternal life, that if we put our faith in you, that you give it freely. It's free to us. It was very costly to you. You suffered a fate we can't, can't even fathom on our behalf. But God, we're so thankful that you sent your son to die in our place and to make a way for us to have eternal life. We pray that uh, everyone here listening online would come to know you, that we would learn to trust you, to trust ourselves to the one who judges righteously. And we pray you come and come quickly, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, y'all. Ready? Break.